If you have caught a glimpse this year of any NFL game, whether it's our beloved Seahawks or not, then you've seen at least one commercial for either DraftKings or FanDuel. See these guys holding up these giant cardboard checks that they've won. Those of you who don't watch football, not into sports, forgive me again for a sports analogy, for a sports reference. But FanDuel and DraftKings are what they call fantasy football leagues. They're daily fantasy football leagues. They're leagues where you can sign in through the internet, lay down a bunch of money through your credit card, pick a team from various teams around the NFL, and based on their individual performance, they will bring you points in your game against whoever you're playing who also put down money somewhere else. FanDuel and DraftKings were in the news this week. That's why the Lord brought them to mind as I was thinking about this subject because the New York State Attorney General has outlawed these sites in the state of New York because they are gambling, essentially. I bring them up because they are symptomatic or they are proof or they are a result, their popularity and their success of one of our society's primary temptations. We want to be rich. We long to be rich. And the quicker we can be rich, the quicker we can be wealthy, the easier, the better. It's the kind of society that we live in, and it's not just illustrated by this sports, fantasy, online gambling thing. It's represented when uh, the nightly news speaks of the lottery shooting up to a certain level, and then all of a sudden, everyone and their grandmother is buying a lottery ticket, looking for that wealth. It's also illustrated by those of us who have made financial security a driving motivation in the why and the how of our work. Money is a powerful thing, no doubt. Wealth is a seductive thing. It's it's a thing that so easily makes and convinces us that our wants are really our needs. And it feeds us the lie, if only you had, you fill in the blank, then I would be, you fill in the blank. Well, it's no different in Solomon's day. Yeah, the objects that they pursued and the way they went about pursuing money and wealth was different. But in that ancient society, the blossoming of international trade during the time of Solomon was incredibly enticing. People were making a ton of money. That's why the Bible talks a lot about money. It's why Jesus, when He was on earth, talked a lot about money. While it's tempting for us this morning, it's tempting for me this morning to bring all of that biblical weight into this morning's sermon. The Lord's given us this. 
Sure, we'll look at some other passages, but the Lord has given us Ecclesiastes 5, and that's what He's put before us today concerning the issue of wealth. I recognize it's a long passage, and I want to help frame it for for you and, and distill it for you so you can digest all of that which I read. And we're going to do that with three primary truths this morning. And the way we're going to do it is a little bit different, and it's based upon the way the passage is structured. I can't believe I'm going to say this word in a sermon, but I'm going to. This sermon is, a, or this text is a chiasm. It's in a chiastic structure. You're like, what in the world are you talking about? It's, it's a, a chiastic structure, uh, for those of you who don't know literature, is based on the Greek word, uh, Greek letter chi, which looks like an X. And so what we're going to do, the way this, this, this passage is structured, is the beginning and the end of the passage say the same thing. And then, as you get a little further and a little further in, they say the same thing until we get to the heart of the passage. The heart of the passage, which will be our third point. And so, just so you have some reference, uh, our first point will be, from chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, as well as chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, followed by our second truth from 5, 13 through 17, and 6, 3 through 6. And then we're going to end in the center, in the heart of the passage, chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. And it was all very technical, and the only reason I said it was because I know some of you, it would be helpful to organize your thinking. And also... I don't want you to just stare at me this whole time. I never want you to just stare at me. But I want you to have your Bibles open, in your laps, like the Bereans, making sure that Pastor Nate is saying what the Bible says. And you're following what the Bible says. And so three truths from this large passage of Scripture. And the first one is simply this. The pursuit of wealth will leave you empty. The pursuit of wealth will leave you empty. The Bible challenges us this morning to take stock, every one of us, take stock of your heart's relationship to money. Your heart's relationship to wealth. It's a passage that doesn't discriminate any in this room. Even though I know that some of us in this room are financially more wealthy than others. Some of us in this room are currently struggling financially, but all of us in this room have some level of wealth. And according to the world's standards, we are wealthy. And it's not our wealth, it's not our money, it's not whatever your bottom line is in your bank account that's the issue. It's the temptation to pursue that, to be preoccupied with that bottom line. And Solomon warns, the Bible reminds us this morning, that the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of money, will leave you empty. And it will do this in at least two ways under this first point. First of all, there's no end to the chase. There's absolutely no end to the chase for wealth. It's a pursuit that never will satisfy you. 
Solomon begins the very outset in verse 8. He begins by talking and focusing on this inescapable reality of injustice in our broken world. Verses 8 and 9. And it's a return to a previous theme that Solomon has talked about as he's looked at those who abuse their power. But as he brings it up here in this passage, he's connecting it to the issue of wealth. He's connecting it to the issue of our money because he's saying that the end result of greed is this kind of situation where those who have been preoccupied with wealth and pursued wealth are now in positions of power and they're lording it over those without. And he's not condoning that situation. He's grieving over that situation. Greed brings about injustice. And so Solomon says essentially, don't be surprised by this. Don't let it knock you off your rocker. Get used to it. Deal with it. It's the reality of the world that we live in. And as you think about applying it to your heart, don't be sucked into the trap of pursuing what they have pursued. Wealth and money. Verse 9 is one of the most difficult verses in this passage. I don't want to just skip over it. Verse 9, you see there in your Bibles, but this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. No one knows exactly what Solomon is trying to say in this. Is he trying to say that it's better to have oppression and order in in, in regards to a king in control, even though he's oppressing others? At least he is cultivating the fields and there's not chaos in the land. Or is Solomon saying that a king who is committed to allowing a field to be cultivated for the sake of giving to those who are in need, feeding the hungry, essentially. We, we don't know what exactly he's saying by that little phrase there, a king committed to cultivated fields. But what we do know is that there is no satisfaction in the pursuit of wealth. I had a conversation with my kids not too long ago. I don't remember why we got on this subject, but we were talking about the issue of survival. And uh, one of my children made the comment of, I don't understand people, you know, you getting stranded on a desert island. I mean, you've got all that water. You can just drink the water around the island, right? And I instructed this one particular Hitchcock kid who will remain nameless, that no, salt water actually has the opposite effect. And it's the same thing with wealth. The more wealth you attain, the thirstier you become. Right? You've all heard the Rockefeller quote, how much, are, uh, how much wealth, oh, I just, it just left my mind. How much wealth do you want to attain, and and I think you said something like, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, that's always the phrase. And King Solomon says, Amen. And there's no better guide. There's no better guide. Forget Bill Gates, forget Michael Jordan, forget Warren Buffett, all these modern day millionaires. There is no better guide to remind us of this truth than Solomon. No one compared to Solomon's wealth 
and power and stature. And Solomon's saying, don't go after it. It will leave you empty. Not only is there no satisfaction, but under this first point, there's also no peace in the pursuit of wealth. It's another thing that Solomon draws out here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. When we have more wealth, there's more responsibility, right? There's more worry. Look at verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner? What he's saying there is with wealth and possessions, inevitably comes those who are eager to consume what you have acquired. Right? That mansion has got to have a maid. That mansion has got to have a gardener. That bank account has got to have a financial accountant. The government needs its share of your money, of course. And then there are your friends who need your help. I remember when I was, uh, not this past year, but the year before when I was at the, the Masters Golf Tournament, one of these family traditions that our family is blessed to have. Uh, Anna's cousin uh, introduced me to one of the players, one of the golfers who was playing in the tournament, introduced me to uh, his wife because she was an old family friend of his and we went over to watch the tournament and she was following him around. And, and so we, uh, I met her and we're talking a little bit about, um, well, we're talking about Ricky Fowler because she knew him, and she, he babysat her kids. And Anyway, you guys aren't golfers, so you don't know who I'm talking about. Sorry. Uh, we were talking with her, and it was interesting, because as, as I was talking with her, some random man in the crowd recognized her. Because she's been on TV a lot, as her husband has been successful at, in golf. And he introduced himself. He immediately came up and introduced himself as so-and-so from such-and-such an organization. And we kind of got edged out of the conversation a little bit, and I kind of asked Anna's cousin, I said, what, what's that? And, and she, he says, it happens all the time. It's a person who recognizes that here's a woman of means, here's a woman of wealth, and he's going to take his opportunity. In fact, he's there at the tournament to find them, to try to get them to support his cause. He may have had a wonderful cause. I'm not diminishing his intentions or his cause, but he illustrates what Solomon says here. There will always be people who want what you have. No peace, because everyone wants a piece of the pie. And because of this, verse 12 states, the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The worries, the stress, the indulgence all take their toll on the wealthy and they ultimately leave, they leave us empty, unsatisfied without peace, unable to sleep. That's the first bit of wisdom that we learn from this passage. As we move in towards the center of this passage, we come to the second truth. And that's, it's related. The hoarding of wealth will leave you empty. So Solomon doesn't only, doesn't only talk about pursuing wealth, but hoarding your wealth. That will leave you empty. Think for a moment with me about the strange phenomenon in our modern day culture, which is self-storage. I mean, really. And forgive me if you have a self-storage unit in this room. But 
we build buildings in order to pay someone else to house the stuff that won't fit in the buildings that we own. I mean, it's crazy. And yet they're booming. They're all over the place. We are a culture of stuff. Of hoarding stuff. And Solomon says, stop it. The result is, is emptiness. We think, you think you're going to find life there, but there is no life there. And Solomon speaks of such a man in verses 13 of chapter 5 and following. A man whose life illustrates the fact that whether it be a bad venture, whether it be, as Paul says, moth, rusts, rust, burglars, fire, you name it, poof, in an instant, it can all be gone. The hoarding of wealth will leave you empty. And if one of those doesn't take it, you know what will take it is your own death. The hoarding of wealth destroys relationship as well. Like Scrooge in Dickens' Christmas tale, the man who pursues and hoards his wealth ends up, verse 17 says, eating in the dark, bitter and alone. In chapter 6, verses 3 through 6, they, it echoes this emptiness. The preoccupation of always wanting more, never being content with what we have, results in a life that regardless of the length of years, you can live a thousand years twice time over, regardless of the amount of children you have, the blessing of children was something, I mean, it, it's, it's a blessing here and now, but in the ancient culture it was one of the highest blessings, one of the highest signs of God's prosperity was children. And Solomon says, you can, you can live a thousand years, you can have a ton of kids, but if you are not content, if you're always wanting more, if you're hoarding the wealth that you have, you might as well not even lived. I mean, whoa, he, he brings up this graphic picture of a stillborn child. He said, you'd be better off to be a child who never lived. Stark, stark language. There is a lot at stake here. Vanity, vexation, better off not even being born, Solomon says. The pursuing of wealth, the hoarding of wealth will leave you empty. So what's the way forward? Is there any good news in the sermon, Pastor? Give me something. Well, here it comes. It's the heart of the passage, verses 18 through 20 of chapter 5, and it's Summarized by this point, trust the Lord with your wealth. Trust the Lord with your wealth. Let me flesh that out a little bit. Our relationship to our money, our relationship to our wealth is directly related to our relationship with the God that we've come to worship this morning. We all believe, Psalm 24.1, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We confess with our lips, James 1, that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. But do we love and trust our Father's heart enough to trust Him with our wealth? Do we believe, John 10.10, 10, that Jesus came to give us life and life abundant. 
You see, the turn from pursuing and hoarding our wealth, from destroying that idol, that temptation, begins not simply by working hard to remove it, but by replacing it. The Apostle Paul helps us. 2 Corinthians 8, 8 and 9. Paul had just encouraged the Corinthian church to, to give generously to the work of the kingdom. To give generously to the poor, to those who are in need, to not hoard, to not pursue wealth. And he writes this in 2 Corinthians 8, 8 and 9. I say this not as a command. In other words, I'm not just telling you to do this, Paul says, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, that through His poverty you might become rich. See, Paul brings into view the Gospel. And, and Paul's not talking specifically about earthly wealth when he speaks of Jesus here, but the Gospel still applies Jesus gave up the riches of heaven in order to make you His ultimate treasure in order that you might make Him your ultimate treasure. In order that the stuff of this earth might grow dim in the light of His glory and grace. So undergird, excuse me, undergirded by this, <clears throat> undergirded by the gospel. If we return to our passage and we return to verses 18 through 20, Solomon reminds us and calls us, as he calls us to trust God with our wealth, to three things specifically. And I'm just going to close with these three applications concerning our wealth, concerning our money. Each of this is easily a sermon in and of itself. But the first thing, as you trust the Lord with your wealth, the first thing is enjoy it. What? Enjoy it. Yeah. Verse 18 of chapter 5. Good and fitting it is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil. So friends, no guilt walking out of this room. No guilt. Only gratitude. Only humility. From the Lord and to the Lord. Enjoy your iPhones. Enjoy your wine. Enjoy your scotch. Enjoy your leather interior and that fancy concert downtown. Enjoy it. And enjoy the hard work that brought you to that point because it's all a gift from your Father. He's good. And He loves you. And He loves when you enjoy His gifts. As you enjoy it, recognize that it's all by grace, right? We're not proudly holding on to these things. No, we're even requesting that grace fill us anew 
Solomon makes clear here that even the power to enjoy the stuff, the good gifts, the wealth that we have been given, is from God Himself, not in the things themselves. God has given good gifts to thousands, to millions of people on this planet, and so many of them are miserable. They can't enjoy it. While some of us who have very little are just living in sweet satisfaction and joy in the Lord. That's by design. As one commentator cleverly said, satisfaction sold separately. George Herbert, who was a poet, I need to read more poetry. You probably need to read more poetry too. But he wrote a poem that I found. It is so good. Even though it's a poem, so it's hard to understand. But listen, it's good. It, res- it, it illustrates this very point. It's called The Pulley. He writes, When God at first made man, having a glass of blessings standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Let the world's riches, which dispersed lie, contract into a span. So strength first made away, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, and pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all His treasure, rest in the bottom lay. For if I should, said He, bestow this jewel also on my creature, He would adore my gifts instead of me, and rest in nature, not in the God of nature. So both shall losers be. Yet let him keep the rest, but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, then at least, if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. Isn't that good? God has poured out blessings on this earth, and yet He has designed it that there's not satisfaction found in that blessing alone. No, he's kept himself. Only through him can we really enjoy. Trust God with your wealth by enjoying it. Secondly, under this last point, be content. Be content. Why is the sleep of the laborer sweet? Asks verse 12 of chapter 5. He works hard and he sleeps soundly, it says. Because the poor live by what they see, not by what they don't see, not by what they long for, right? Chapter 6, verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. We've talked about contentment before. I've preached sermons on contentment. We could go in great length about all that Paul, Paul's learned contentment in Philippians 4.11. He exhorts Timothy's church in 1 Timothy 6 to be content. One of my favorite verses, a prayer. It's not a prayer of Solomon. It's a prayer of Agur. In, Psalm, or excuse me, in Proverbs 38 and 9, where the proverb... Uh, Sage says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Remember this one? Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal 
and profane the name of my God. Strive for contentment. Pray for contentment. Again, it's not something that you just gird yourself up and do. It's something that must flow from looking at the Gospel. From making the Lord your vision and strength for everything. That's the second thing in this call to trust. And lastly, and we'll end here, you're called to generosity. Solomon doesn't specifically exhort you to that, but there's no doubt that Solomon in this passage is concerned about the poor. He's concerned about those in need. And as he says, don't pursue wealth, don't hoard your wealth, because it's going to leave you empty, but trust God with your wealth. Implicit in that is, be generous. God blesses His children not simply to hoard, but to bless others. And this was Paul's parting charge to Timothy. Passage we've looked at already. It's a passage that well mirrors this passage in Ecclesiastes 5. Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Be generous. Trusting God with your wealth, wealth looks like contentment. It looks like enjoyment. And it looks like generosity. So the questions before us this morning, good questions to ask as the holiday season rolls upon us. Are we pursuing? Are you hoarding? Do you believe that the Father is good? If so, you can enjoy, you can trust that He has given you your portion and you don't have to clutch, you don't have to cling with white knuckles onto anything. It's all yours. You love me. Thank you. It's the gift of God. It's good. It's fitting. It's wise. And you know what? It's life. It's true life. 